What's up, everyone? My next guest of the Heart Speaks podcast is my friend, Robert Wickers, who I met basically at a platform called ThinkSpot, uh, one of the outfits of Jordan Peterson, actually, which is not fully up and running, but should be up and running at some time. But anyway, he was a producer on that project. and We became friends and we decided to have him on the pod. And we talked a lot about Terrence Malick, my favorite film director, hence the title of this podcast. Uh, We talked about Paolo Sorrentino. We got into sort of their philosophies as film directors and, you know, a little bit of religion as well. I'm always into talking about the wisdom traditions. So we talked about, covered a lot of different cool things for this particular podcast. It was really, truly a riff in the musical sense of the word. So I hope you like it. I hope you'll share with your friends and I hope you learn something from it. And as always, this is the Heart Speaks Podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Valdry. Thanks for listening. What's up? <laughs> Not much. What's up? Uh, oh, yeah. Thank well, you. Yeah. I don't even know how to finish my words. <laughs> this is obviously going to be a deeply informal conversation. No doubt. No doubt. Starting out from the get-go. What are, these, what are these books you have behind you? Oh, gosh. What do we got here? Um, got Tropic of Cancer. Free women, free men, Paglia. Got it, you know. Shout out, shout out to the real the realists to ever do it. <laughs> the remains of the day. He's actually somebody just gave these to me in bulk recently. So I'm just kind of sitting on like a, a trove of uh of books here. But uh yeah, what uh is that you got a new setup there? Are you in some new digs? Are you in bedside? You've never seen my office, I'm realizing. Oh okay, um, I'm in Bushwick actually. I've oh been, no way. Yeah, my office has been here for a few months now. And yeah, I've been really enjoying it. I try to come in every day during the week as much as I can. Oh, oh yeah. You were telling me about this. It's kind of like a studio space, like a uh, collab area. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty nice. I, I enjoy it. And they have great espresso here, too. So there you go. When I was living in Bushwick, there was a place down the street that would do um, drink and draws on Wednesday. That was also a co-working space. So Freaking what? Like- drink and draw so you'd be leaving your little area and there'd just be like a nude figure uh, model hanging out just getting ready for uh just chilling for his 50 dollars an hour or whatever it is so, that's such yeah. a that's such a brooklyn experience i feel like yeah exactly exactly a little, if, little on the nose yeah <laughs> i don't know if manhattan would countenance that sort of thing you know? <laughs> yeah exactly you didn't you just go to times square to do your nude figure drawing that's <laughs> That's for free. So yeah, I feel like in Manhattan, it would they would do it, but it would be like underground. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's got to have that air of uh, of mystique and uh, yeah. exclusivity. So that tabooness, whereas Brooklyn mm-hmm. would be like out and about with it. Yeah, there's there's some eyes wide shut type shit going on in in Manhattan for sure. Not. You know, a... I have people keep referencing that movie. I've never <laughs> seen that movie. Oh damn! Yeah, I mean, uh, go see it. It's a it's a classic. It's like badly very. Uh, Is it going to depress me? Like, am I going to be depressed? No, I think it's more like it's more evocatively like disturbing. But you'll just be thinking about it for a time, uh, okay. which I think is the ultimate sort of a triumph of of any film. But that's true. That's just me. I don't know. It might feel a little too real with uh, previous happenstance and uh, Epstein and so on and so forth. But, oh. Up to you. I've seen like the one clip where they're all in masks. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Show up at the party or whatever. Yeah, my friend for Halloween, him and his fiance did a nice wide shot little cosplay, and it was like 
it's been <laughs> like a year since that's feeling a little too fresh but no it's uh yeah a good one check it out i feel like there's a bit of like gnostic vibes in the whole eyes wide shut epstein like sure. i feel like there's a spectrum and like i don't actually know anything about masonry and for those of <laughs> you who are listening who may be into it i'm not interested yeah. in knowing anything about it let me tell you from the get-go like I find it a little weird, but if I were to guess is that there's a spectrum of Gnosticism, there's like masonry on this end. And then there's like eyes wide shut Epstein. On yeah. <laughs> like the pipeline is uh, a classic, but yeah. no, there's in San Francisco in particular, there's so many crazy uh, illusions and randomly in the architecture, uh, particularly around, I think it's Knob Hill. But you'll just see all of a sudden like stonemason stuff and and these sort of like inscriptions on a random wall and everyone's just like yeah, there's some <laughs> some sinister vibes going on in SF that you know the least of which is is like historically <laughs> gnostic but yeah crazy I just I I know that there is a whole like side of gnosticism that's cool and dope but I think there's just been centuries of other stuff piled onto it and my recent current obsession with uh Taoism mm. and with like tantric Buddhism mm. has made me very allergic to like the like the whole masonry how so what in what regard because Taoism is like non-dualistic mm. it's like in in Taoism and in versions of tantric Buddhism they'll say like nirvana and samsara are the same thing because it's non-dual whereas with I, by the way i don't know if any of these words are making sense i apologize no no <laughs> i love not. it yeah, yeah um whereas in in certain aspects of gnosticism like everything is dualistic everything is like split everything is like there's the pure and the impure there's the fallen world and the higher world hmm. and like john verveke has spoken about the fallout of that kind of way of thinking and just on an individualistic level it's very disintegrated like that sort of there's pure and there's mm -hmm. impure like mm -hmm. separation and i find that it can become like it can easily ble like bleed onto schizophrenia <laughs> and paranoia yeah so. that's that's interesting that commentary on integration tends to be a theme that also runs through kind of like the the german idealist strain mm -hmm. and also um even like heidegger's main beef with descartes was essentially the uh, you know the the dualism the kind of like yeah. mind body and separation of soul as a complete distraction from the reality of obviously like the phenomenology of being and so on and what yeah. like full integration looks like so that seems to be sort of a running theme through all of these, you know, like the archetypical mythos that, uh, you know, Jung would, would uh, posit. But uh, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. I haven't dipped into anything east of like Zoroastrianism, yeah. so I need to uh, take a gander. But You've only you gone to Persia. Yeah, exactly. My <laughs> The extent of Alexander's uh, yeah. of empire. But yeah, I got to keep it rolling. What, uh, what like, kind of got you sent you to, in that direction i mean you have some exposure to, to obviously christianity judaism yeah. and, and did you want to catch them all or what was the <laughs> yeah i love that i love that question so in actually so i saw that your favorite movie right now is a hidden life and by terrence malick classic my favorite everyone who knows me knows my favorite character mm -hmm. um shout out to terrence malick if you'd like to come on this pod <laughs> uh, oh my goodness i would love to have you um what we get but in 2020, I saw A Hidden Life in theaters and it like, no, I'm sorry, in December of 2019. Oh. 
before the storm. Yeah, on the precipice. <laughs> on the precipice. I saw A Hidden Life. And it was the first movie where I came out of the theater. You know how you come out the movie theater and it's like, there's there can be this weird separation anxiety because you mm-hmm. were like in the film and now you're like in the real world. Mm-hmm. Where a, a Hidden Life, I saw the film, I came out and it was like still with me. Like, yeah. like I wanted to... For those of you who may not know, A Hidden Life, let me just back up, is about this Austrian guy who protested against the Nazis. And by protest against the Nazis, I mean like the Nazis came to turn Austria into one of their outposts. And, you know, he was this like Austrian farmer and his wife was like, we could just go escape into the woods. And this man made it a point of his being, like his very being became a protest. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't like hateful against the Nazis. He wasn't, you know, bigoted against anyone who decided to become a Nazi, but he organized his life in such a way that his very being was a protest, that he refused to escape. He refused to like run away. He actively and consciously refused to become a Nazi. And he sort of like went all the way up into the ranks of the prison system, all the way up into Berlin. Until finally he was executed, but he made his entire life a kind of meditation in that Mm -hmm. sense. And that was the first film that made me seriously consider meditation. Mm -hmm. And so then 2020 descends upon us and I'm like, oh, I definitely need to meditate. (laughs) So I started meditating and then I discovered John Verbeke's work and his meditation contemplation practices are heavily influenced by both Socrates on the one hand and a lot of Buddhism, Vipassana Buddhism on the other hand. So that was like my foray into Buddhism. And then I was also reading like the Tao of Pooh, which is about how Winnie the Pooh is like a Taoist (laughs) character. I love it. And so like slowly but surely as I progressed through my practice, I started like being intrigued by Taoism, by Tantra, which is about the transmutation of emotions. So it actually started with Terrence Malick. Wow, there we go. Full circle. (laughs) I love that. That's so interesting what you said about um, also the kind of like re-entry into the world after you're in the theater. I feel like that's a conscious litmus test for Malick is like Mm. the success of his films hinge upon or contingent upon the individual like in that kind of like crossing of the plane from theater, just total solemnity immersion, like meditation as his films are back into the world where you're just sort of like thrown by it. And again, like that's again, a little on the nose, like the concept of thrownness that Heidegger talks about Mm. that. And Malik was like a Heideggerian scholar. He taught philosophy. Oh, was he? He, Yeah. He taught uh, philosophy at MIT. He was uh, at Harvard studied under, I think a famous actually film uh, philosophy theorist and then he went to oxford on a road scholarship of course left early after his <laughs> dissertation was rejected came back taught at mit and i think he actually translated some of heidegger's later works and met him actually but the idea so he's he's um in just an insane uh <laughs> life that very casually strewn across like multiple disciplines that obviously end up all being integrated but i think that moment when you come out of the theater is very consciously like have i achieved the receiver feeling that thrownness going back to the world. And I think that even for someone like myself who didn't see it in theaters, mm-hmm. that moment of like, oh my gosh, you're you're now outside and you are fully conscious in a way that I think you didn't realize well or before you were watching the film. But that's when you know I think he's really uh he's found his form or is or is back to it because I think he thrives with historical set pieces, mm-hmm. particularly because it's all about creating a kind of presence in an absence, like a world that very much we know and are conscious of not existing, but the degree to which he can cohere this all together like yeah. sensually. 
you know, creates a sense of like being in presence that is, you know, then translates to this, like, oh my gosh, I emerged from the theater and it's just, it hits you, you know, yeah. but I, this is also just one of the most evocative films I've seen in, in years, but, uh, which is to me just the very simple test for, for quality for film for me. But anyway. Yeah. I mean, I saw many of his other films. I was first struck by Tree of Life. I don't actually remember the first time I saw it because I've seen it multiple times now. But I saw it and I wish I could remember like the context in which I saw it, but it just impacted me so deeply. And I feel like a hidden life was sort of his, I mean, not to say that he can't eat, do even greater than a hidden life, but like, I feel like that's the apex. That's the standard mm -hmm. because it combined his very, not whimsical, whimsical isn't the right word, actually, his, his almost water-like Mm -hmm. approach to cinematography and also to like an acting method mm -hmm. with actual historical events. And so I think that is what enabled the almost like a calling to emerge. Because when I saw that film, after I saw that film, I felt like I was being asked, like, this is the standard. Are you living up to it? Like in mm -hmm. your lived experience like this is the standard of a of a person whose character was resolute who had to bear the suffering of his persecution right and did so with not just a kind of conviction but also like grace towards mm -hmm. the people who were persecuting him and I love that Terrence Malick did this about this particular subject because I often hear yes I can understand how a Dr. King might practice nonviolence towards racists in America but certainly not the Nazis. We would never do it for the Nazis. And like you see like this guy doing it in his small way, but mm -hmm. in a very impactful and profound way. And it, it was just such a beautiful film. I didn't know that Malik was a student of Heidegger. I have a number of texts by Heidegger that I have not read because I'm just so intimidated yeah. by, <laughs> by his work. I'm curious if you would advise like starting with anyone treaties by Heidegger. I think you, you got to dive right in on, you know, <laughs> being in time, but it has okay. to be accompanied by, I think readers, I keep it super mm -hmm. surface level and don't try and uh, have the, you know, the hubris to think I yeah, can take yeah, that yeah. on in and of itself, but just to be in it and then have something accompanying, I'll even just do something as simple as like Googling, you know, the concepts that you see, and then you'll have like, cause there is, there are people just dedicated to like paragraphs of, yeah. You know what I mean? And so you kind of have to just to break it down. And in no way do I feel like I will finish it or even like mm -hmm. that's the goal. It's just like, what can I take out? And a lot of it's great because like the more you watch Malik as well, the more you kind of just have the impetus to dive back in and, and have some referential stuff there. But no, I think um, the the fascinating thing about Malik as well is that he like, obviously there's a sense of ambition Mm -hmm. uh, that you feel in the film, just the way it's shot, the like, kind of transcendental cinematography and um, the concept of like, you know, the camera as spirit and what that sort of mm -hmm. implies. But he also, uh, if that's not enough, you know, of, of, <laughs> of, a, uh, of a challenge, he's looking to more and more with each of his films, I think, embrace like the Christian allegory yeah. um, and sort of like the archetypical Christ or like in Knight of Cups, like the story of Job, which you so rightly pointed out to me uh, after watching that. But in this case, you know, he 
he gets very uh, explicit when it comes to like uh, the judge as sort of like a Pontius Pilate figure. Yeah. Um, the two, you know, fellow prisoners who are executed next to him as like the two thieves besides mm-hmm. Christ or, or criminals besides Christ, one hardened, one kind of like one softened. So there are all these very explicit allusions, but yet it somehow doesn't feel like contrived or yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah. Which I think is an incredible achievement in and of itself, but also I noticed that the the film criticism community for some reason seems to refuse to engage with the spiritual or Christian elements mm-hmm. of the film, perhaps unsurprisingly, but there's like an almost an unwillingness, like a cynicism of like, we're not going to take the bait on this level because it, it, it's so imbued with these kind of fraught, I don't know, uh, Do you think polarizing concepts. Do you think that's what it is? I, I, it's either like these people are, are are much brighter than myself and have, are you know way better versed in film across the board, but they're yeah. like is very consistently this inability to do so. And the cynical view is like y- there is this conscious decision or like this mandate editorially or something. But it's also possible that they're just like the certain wavelength that people are on with Malik. They're kind of kind of either on it or not. Mm-hmm. And maybe it is sort of just like a willingness to give yourself up to sort of like a spiritual experience. And maybe some people that's just not part of their interests naturally or instinctually. So I don't know. I don't know. Not that one is better than the other or whatever, but I find it interesting. I know that the actors at Cannes Film Festival got like a ridiculous standing ovation Mm. in terms of like how long it lasted. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's striking that like the the response to Malik's films and in particular, this last film is overwhelming praise and appreciation. And yet I wonder how much that translates into that feeling of a calling. Mm Because that's what I felt when I was watching it. Mm -hmm. But I suspect just knowing my own ego and projecting it out onto others for a second, I suspect that the reason for this hesitation to spiritual life is basically like you have to like carry the weight if you're going to do it. You know, Mm -hmm. you have to like really be willing to, you know, to take a Christian sort of parable to like leave all your riches behind and like bear the burden of immersing yourself in Mm -hmm. that entirely new and different paradigm. And I think that there's obviously rewards and gifts and beauty that comes with that, but it is deeply terrifying actually to Mm -hmm. like sort of before you make the leap and even while you're falling, it's deeply terrifying. And I think I suspect that that hesitation is present because that hesitation is within me. So I can see it being present within other people as well. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think that's, uh, yeah, that's probably a, a pretty fair assessment considering that like this is not, you know, the, I don't know, media class is perhaps not best known for their, <laughs> you know, equanimous yeah. like, you know, takes and, and so on uh, or willingness to just kind of give themselves over to, to somebody's full vision that speaks to maybe a time before we know as modernity and like yeah. the era as it relates to spirituality. But yeah, I don't know. It is fascinating. Like I, I saw Richard Brody like got really caught up and I think he's just been, he, I kind of give a pass to because he's been so traumatized by mm. Nazi films as mm. a framework to project um, somebody's like very simple and one dimensional, you know, view of the world and how that can like be extrapolated to some sort of pet cause. So he was yeah. just sort of like, God damn it, like stop doing these Nazi <laughs> films, et cetera, and missing the point entirely. But then there's somebody like Mark Kermode who is uh sees, I don't know, Malik's technique techniques as like very indulgent, mm-hmm. which I find which is something you hear, you know, very self-indulgent, you hear constantly about Malik. But it's it seems a little bit of a empty take just because 
everything is so distilled mm -hmm. in Malick's films, despite the fact that it, it can feel like if you look at any sort of shot without context, you can see, yeah. okay, wow, like what is going on here? But pieced together, the entire composition is like an utter distillation of majorly ambitious concepts that end up kind of striking home where he intends to. So yeah, just, I don't know. It just speaks to a sort of like intangible that he brings that it just is not maybe as accessible as, as, it, as I would think, but I don't yeah. know. I like to contrast Malick with Apollo Sorrentino's work because oh, oh. when I think of indulgence, yeah, deliberate, yeah, yeah. deliberately. Sure. So sure. in the like Italian, yeah, Italian exactly. tradition, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. And it's sort of like, I love Sorrentino's work as a kind of ode to indulgence. Mm -hmm. Have you seen The Young Pope? Yeah, so I've seen the first season. Okay. Um, yeah, The Young Pope is, I, I need to see catch up. You on have to two, see Especially the John season. Malkovich. The second season, I didn't even know it was possible to like, I mean, obviously the first season was amazing, but like the second season is like spectacular. I love it, yeah. yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a commentary on like fascism and extremism within the context of the Catholic Church. It's a commentary on the sort of, inclination and this is also seen in like the dark knight uh and the batman series in general but sort of inclination to dismiss the rich mm. and and it's it's like the fact that he was able to do all these things in one season mm -hmm. was just you have to watch it and then we have to talk about it because yeah it's absolutely no, it's any any uh excuse to dive back in that's something i've definitely overlooked but yeah, yeah. i i just watched in uh the hand of god Mm. Uh, which was his recent more like personal work autobiographically. Yeah. So he just kind of a uh, almost a loosely fictionalized account of his life growing up in Naples. And uh, mm. it's certainly in the same vein for me, not as resonant, but beautifully shot. Uh, I don't know if that style of, of story suits him, whereas, mm. you know, he's more of just a kind of composer of just incredible set pieces and kind of like the existentialist aspect, yeah. uh, which there are elements of in, in this, but like the great beauty for me is, is the ultimate, uh, is kind of the apex of his work to me is uh, I was just in Rome. I did a little, uh, personal tour around some of the, some of the shots and like Rome in particular really does invoke this sense of like wonder, but also like existential dread just from the sense yes. of like history and, yes. and sheer beauty that, that exists. And just sort of the, the, like how palpable it is. I found myself like coming back to New York and just being like, in the same way you come out of the theater, it's yeah. like, I need to like take two days to just kind of process this, but which is a great reference to the film when they, the tourist dies, you know, upon yeah. seeing the kind of vista, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, it's striking. It all sounds so like overwrought and, and kind of indulgent, but I think it's kind of fair. I had a literally existential dread is the perfect description of my experience of Rome. I like the first few days I, I was there for like five days in 2015 Mm. And the first two days, I was just like astounded by the beauty. And then the last few days, I was depressed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, yeah. Because it was like the history before mm -hmm. you. It, it was essentially a kind of, you know, that moment in Job where God is like, can you draw Leviathan with a hook? Like when, <laughs> when, when, after Job complains to God and God is like, can you measure the depths of the sea? Can you, mm -hmm. like, that was my experience in Rome. Yeah. And I had to like do some serious meditation and deep study of certain texts, some texts I came across to sort of pull me out of it. But another water reference is coming up for me for with Rome. It's like, it was almost like I was drowning in the depths of so mm -hmm. much Eros Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because Jung, Carl Jung, 
refused to go to Rome because he knew. Really? He yeah, he knew he would. He wouldn't. Wouldn't make out of their yeah. life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Isn't that, that wild? That like of crazy. all people, like <laughs> Young was like, nope. <laughs> yeah. It's a no That's for awesome. me. I think it's uh, Sorrentino was also brilliant to juxtapose that concept of just the the scope of time and grandiosity of Rome and in yeah. every sense from like civilizational to artistic, et cetera. And then the idea of kind of like cultural and societal scleroticism that like, mm. I think Italians generally have felt for some time now, like, especially you talk about the recent election, really yeah. like turnout, et cetera. There's just not a lot of like civic engagement. You know, you kind of have like an encroaching EU when it comes to mm. sort of like neoliberal political economic policies and so on. And just mm. sort of this this kind of sense of malaise. And the friend who I was with really was like, that was sort of the theme for him was this kind of like sense of malaise. And that comes to life in sort of like pomposity that one of the women puts forth this kind of like insecure, you know, overcompensation of like all the works that she's achieved, et cetera. And they're mm. sitting right over the Coliseum. And obviously... And Jeff, the main character who supposedly created this like trans- transcendent work of fiction when he was early and then never worked again, is just sort of like, look where you are and like who you're amongst. Like we're all struggling and living oh, sort of, like, I remember desperate that lives. And the best thing you can do is just like have solidarity and at least recognize suffering in each other and, and kind of elevate that transcendent experience. But that's uh, that could very much be transposed onto certain milieus in the U.S. Yeah. as well. Um but, uh, but the U.S. doesn't have that same grandiosity in terms of its history. I mean, for sure. and that is both a blessing and a curse in many ways. Yeah. It, it sort of stunts our imagination. It impoverishes our sense of perception. Like we can't, there is no grand Coliseum that presumably we could build mm-hmm. it, you know, but that takes an incredible amount of vision and, yeah. and I mean, insight that I don't know that we're, I think we could, we're potentially up to the task, but mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I almost would even argue that we're failing the very little, you know, kind of uh, timeline that we have had historically in the sense Mm -hmm. that like there is no past anymore in the U.S. and the way to which we've been captured by, you know, this just like hyper reactive cycle of media and memes Mm -hmm, and just mm -hmm. general deluge of information. Like there is just the ever present. And that sort of has this like dislocating effect which I think is like you see rejections of more so in somewhere like Italy or of course Mm -hmm. Europe and that's not a novel take by any means but I do think that's like a conscious sort of you know appreciation for tradition or at least nod to it of like we understand that this uh, the test of time has not been proven with regard to these sort of like mediums or pieces of technology that are sort of Mm -hmm. dislocating us now and for what and therefore like fuck off but I think one of the most (laughs) like on that note depressing things for whatever reason was seeing the in Rome was seeing the lime scooters being (laughs) I don't know why like it's not it's incredibly petty and like but it just felt and it has an element of just like romanticization of the the world that doesn't exist based on like my you know weird kind of interior conception of it but it's also like that just doesn't that just feels wrong the same way that like seeing for whatever reason like a phone or computer in a film just feels wrong because i think like a cell phone yeah there's just like this reflexive human rejection of it and maybe it's just me but whenever i see it it just never has worked and there are great filmmakers who have tried to like tackle the contemporary era but whenever like the phone or the screen becomes even like a an ornament and it just feels wrong i don't know succession has done that i've noticed or they try to do it um, but that I think that works for succession because the story is just about dysfunction. It's so sexless <laughs> and smooth and just like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just, it's just uh, shiny, smooth surfaces. And then just yeah. like 
and then internal dysfunction totally yeah. Yeah. so it actually it actually works if the piece is about a kind of bitter almost anemic Mm-hmm. like experience yeah if, the, if that tonal like atmosphere is set i think which is also really difficult to do like that might be one of the few uh wow it's pouring outside that might be one of the few um you know examples of that being done successfully but like i see i don't know like uh the i feel like the the nordic filmmakers these days are very mm. much into like social commentary and like i saw the triangle of sadness last night which is okay. won the palm door this year and essentially the it was a screening and the director was talking about it being about beauty as currency and sort of like influencers and so on and tr- and like it, it's actually like one of the greatest scenes of 2022 in the middle of this film without a doubt just an absolute crescendo that's like mm. orchestrated magnificently but it's also like it's see to me these types of films are held back by their own referentiality to mm. to kind of the the contemporary era when it comes to technology and so on. But yeah. I don't know. That's just me. It's interesting you say the referentiality in this book I recently read about Vajrayana Buddhism. The whole point is to get rid of all references, meaning mm. we cling to references as a kind of security. Mm. And obviously, this challenges the whole sort of grandiosity of the past that we were just talking about as a reference in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But its challenge is to be in the present, not in the sense of presentism, right? Which I think is what you're referring to, but in the ever-present sort of pre-fall in the Garden of Eden type of present where, mm-hmm. oh, speaking of another Malik film, it's sort of like the new world. Oh, yeah. Right? It's like Pocahontas in the new world. Oh. It's like that way of being. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I mean by absence of referentiality. And mm-hmm. I think that's what this text is getting at. And it's so beautiful. And every time I see that movie, I'm like, that's who I want to be. Like, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. I want to embody. Like, absolutely, it's such fierce grace in that sort of absence of referencing, of constantly mm-hmm. need to referencing. And it's not, it doesn't translate as a sort of disrespect of the past or of a disregard for the past. It's almost as if the past is always present anyway, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. as a given. Yeah. And like that, if that if there was ever an archetype of who I wanted to become or or what I wanted to embody, it would be Pocahontas in the New World. I remember. I mean, it's very interesting that he chooses kind of like Pocahontas as the vessel to mm-hmm. perhaps manifest the sense of like fully integratedness and in, yeah. with regard to that same connection to the scope of time and everything that has been, which is like a, a constant Malik theme, like tree of life. You have like the cosmos at the beginning of the film. And so yeah. just like the notion of eternity and what that means uh, from obviously a, a perspective of, of like personal reference and your own existence, but also to what that means for the world around you and the people around you. Hence mm-hmm. the references to nature constantly inter you know, the interstitial kind of shots that may seem random, but are actually very intentional. And one thing I realized that he did that I hadn't totally grasped until a hidden life is like, obviously any sort of allusions to Christ or, you know, the sacred and so on have these implications of eternity, but the, the way that the edits are made or the cuts with individual scenes that appear that they've been shot at different times, but are in the same location or Mm -hmm. similar or one scene that is 
shot in different locations, but is continuing a thread of the same conversation, Mm. I think is sort of a technique he uses to try and project the notion of eternity and the sense that these things uh, live through time, not necessarily in the linear sense of like moment to moment as we perceive them. That's what I thought he was trying to do there, but I, I might just be reading into it, but I found that really interesting. Like that's something he does in each of his films from like thin red line on to mm-hmm. hidden life. And, uh, and it's super effective in my opinion, it gives you this sense of just you're tapping into a holistic experience that's fully integrated, you know? Yeah. It's so beautiful. Again, Terrence Malick, if you want to. <laughs> the goat. He is the goat. One thing I also, the the last thing maybe before I start going down too much of a rabbit hole on Malick is like the one thing I love about Hidden Life's just more kind of like pure film messaging 101, et cetera, is like the anti-utilitarian messaging of this mm-hmm. to a certain degree, because like we're now entering a period where the certain... I don't know, masters of the universe as we see it today uh, amongst, let's say, like the tech set and so on. Gods. Exactly. Like effective altruism. Promethean (laughs) folks who didn't understand the story of Prometheus. Yes, exactly. (laughs) The The transhumanists of the world who fascinatingly separation of mind and body and so on and a total rejection of what, you know, probably not. And it's also, by the way, I I just have to tell you, the more I read, like Taoism, there's these texts that come up that talk about nakedness in the philosophical mm. sense. And I'm realizing there's this there's this through line between, you know, sort of Judeo-Christian, Book of Genesis, who told you that you were naked question mm. that God asks Adam and Eve. Mm. There's a through line between that and like the Taoist calling to enter into philosophical nakedness or be, nakedness as a kind of being, as a kind of Pocahontas-esque sort of uh way of being and the utilitarian contrast with that is sort of like when i think of the utilitarian tech bro contrast i think of the the moment in the myth when when adam and eve like hide from god because they're ashamed and it's automatically this like dualistic separation you've separated yourself from god Mm. like you don't understand the don't even comprehend the oneness which is why, mm. which I think is why God asks, who told you that you were naked, right? Like, what is this sort of yes. separation happening? And sure. I think that the utilitarian mindset is like in pursuit of control. Mm. Because ultimately it's afraid of what we're all afraid of, which is death. Mm-hmm. And existential insecurity and legacy and this sense of like, what now these kind of like effective altruists are are trumpeting is this idea of like our singular focus should be to maximize the potential of like humans existence through millennia meaning yeah we transcend earth we move to mars like yeah. we make sacrifices Shout out to Elon. Yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> i mean listen no i mean we're saying he's this is not one of these kind of like you know cynical leftist denigrations yeah, that you yeah, see yeah. where it's like oh you know to the gulag but like yeah. he. <laughs> Like uh, at the same degree, like we, we need to maximize, you know, things for the future, like future generations, which is, I can understand the appeal and it, it sort of reeks of almost like a, of a somewhat contrived little two pointed Mm. idea that works for the, uh, for the optics. But you know, it's, there's a world now that is just completely being neglected as a function of that mindset. And so anyway, Malik is perhaps the antithesis of that. And I think it should be required viewing his entire filmography for uh, the Fang 
every fang uh, employee but uh yeah the one last thing is that what totally reminds me of what you're saying about that kind of separation is in the film there's the his like buddy in prison who he reunites with who is uh played by a fantastic actor i think i'm forgetting his name i think it's frank rogowski but he's sensational go see transit see victoria both awesome he features prominently but he talks about when you are executed it's by guillotine which i found i thought that was just going to be a device used in the film but they actually yeah. which is just like of course but yeah <laughs> um but he talks about when it you know this dream of your head is separated from your body and you know you're still present within your body and you reach up and take your head and place it back on mm-hmm. you know and like you the sense of like transcendence through death but also like there is no separation yeah um, these two sacred figures sort of like expressing this particular i don't know kind of uh sensibility is interesting but and certainly melikian so i will have to check out this other film that you just mentioned oh yeah definitely check out transit's great victoria i think is fantastic people some people think it's gimmicky because it's one take but uh they shot it all in one take which is insane achievement of itself but it's actually like very very good very well written and also captures i think for me most accurately of any film that i've seen so far just the i don't know the zeitgeist of like berlin uh Mm. in terms of the the techno the the history just kind of the grittiness so on Mm. but uh anyway i'm actually seeing a friend tonight from berlin i don't know what i'll ask her if she's seen these some of these films yeah so so you have any particular uh forecasts for whether or not we as a species are gonna get our shit together (laughs) i (laughs) i was just talking with a friend and a mentor about this i i look at what elon's doing and part of me is like you know ambition i see you you want to save humans by Mm -hmm. going outward basically by like exploring the external terrain of the cosmos i salute the desire to want to further the species i think Mm -hmm. it's a basic desire however i think that the way to do it is not by you know sort of colonizing mars not by exploring territory outside of ourselves but actually exploring territory within Mm -hmm. which is something that i mean you could argue has happened in certain epics of western history certainly like you know, Socrates and, you know, Aurelius and all these figures and, you know, a little bit of Gnosticism, a little bit of Christianity, all these things have been forays into the searching of the human soul, Mm -hmm. but never in a decentralized way while simultaneously being at scale. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And like, that's the puzzle that I'm interested in unlocking. Mm. Do you think there are any kind of like coherent antagonists to the kind of transhumanistic view that exists in in the mainstream is there any sort of like vehicle through which this manifests or emerges or is it just kind of like the people on twitter just in the replies going going in on uh on elon and so on like <laughs> where, not that. what's Never the front know. line <laughs> so what i realized about theory of enchantment is what i'm ultimately seeking to do is building a kind of video game that has external and internal components that will scale human healing. I realized that a few weeks ago, like that's what I'm trying to do. And every iteration of it is just that it's an iteration of it for the next Mm -hmm. version, Mm -hmm. the next version, the next version. And like anti-racism is like one portal into, because I think what our collective society's desire for anti-racism programs reveals is actually a deep and abiding hunger 
for wholeness Mm -hmm. and a lot of the kind of really subpar programs out there are just reflections of our lack of wholeness Mm -hmm. but the desire for it is like we are craving we are hungry for it and i'm realizing that like the anti-racism piece is just one piece of a larger sort of i don't know what it'll be but like of a larger suite of uh, practices mm-hmm. whose goal is to scale human healing. Yeah. And when you say scale, what is the, what are the access points that you find are most effective or you think will be, you know, what educationally through corporations, schools, um, communities, yeah. like what, what is your vision on that front? So I think it has to, to a certain extent, go through already pre-established groups. So when companies are interested in anti-racism practices, like that's one, you know, group model schools. That's another group model. Uh, The problem with that or the challenge with that is I think you have to go in and figure out what some of their practices already are and build something that's complementary to their system. Not all aspects of their system, but some aspects of their system, because it's got to be indigenous to their system. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. won't like stick. But also on the sort of quasi-individual level, I want to create a video game that like rivals like Assassin's Creed. Mm-hmm. In what and way? I, it was, like- so I saw my friend playing this video game the other day <laughs> and I'd never seen it before. And they like go to ancient Greece. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and like you're in the Vatican and they're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I love the way they pronounce his name and I'm going to start pronouncing his name in this way. There's like quests where they have to like, I played one episode of this, where they have to like go talk to Socrates, <laughs> right? <laughs> and like rescue Socrates right, from whatever. Right. And I'm like, I'm sitting here watching my friend play this game and I'm like, what? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wait a minute. Why don't we design a game? This is just like the first thing that fired off in my head. What if we yeah. designed a game where like, you could go to ancient Greece and study Stoicism, like for right, real, right, right. Yeah. right? Like where you could go to ancient Israel and study peoplehood, where you could go to ancient China and study Taoism, like, and there would be the individual component where you're sort of sitting on your sofa playing the game, but there would also be the group component where you have to like go and meet with other people, let's say that are trying to master the elements. We're going to throw in an avatar, the last Airbender reference. Oh yeah. Trying to master all the elements and become king, become queen. And one of the quests is you have to go do one of the quests is not simply in sort of Pokemon Go-esque where you have to go do something with these other mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. The quest, I'm just realizing this right now out loud. <laughs> the quest is you actually have to build community yeah. with those other people who are also trying to become kings and queens because the community will be the container that sustains the new embodied practice mm-hmm. along the way. So I have a lot of like energy within me moving toward this idea. Yeah. And everything that I build in theory of enchantment is going to like iterate on this idea in the same way that everything that Elon Musk or many of the things that Elon Musk has built were just iterative versions of what came before. Yeah, I love I what I love about that is uh, the sense of like creating again, I guess, like pulling back themes from earlier, like the I don't know, the feeling of presentness in time as a whole, yeah. as a scope and your connection to history, obviously, and like the groundedness that that provides and a sort of like existential reckoning that that implies that I think is super healthy. And that intuition that you have for that is, I think, pays dividends for sure. But yeah, anything that's going to be fostering community building is going to yeah. be <laughs> is going to be such a premium, I think, going forward as uh, we start to realize sort of the deleterious effects of uh, of a lot of modernity when it comes to community. I mean, we were already 
we're already uh, have you know reaped what we've sowed them uh, quite a bit. So yeah, that's yeah. that is an antidote that uh, all for that's super cool. But I like that you're having these these uh, continuous revelations and kind of building on the foundation that you've set from years prior, and it's still growing and like responsive to your experience around you. So that's super cool. Yeah, I'm a little like I have to remain. I have to keep being humble because it's like, but can we do it? Like, because it seems like a lot of things are crumbling around us <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. i know well that, that's the one question i have is like do you have to place like really enduring faith in the institutions that we have currently whether private or public or uh, local or national etc to believe that like what you've created can be fostered properly and administered properly and like um proliferate throughout that like almost if it works it has to like unravel some of these institutes you know what i mean like it has to strike at the heart of what i don't know that's something that i find that like that's great as if there's any sort of reckoning that's occurring on whatever sort of level that's fantastic but like you know for there to be like massive resonance it almost has to undermine what what's existing for sure and this is a great like shout out to the people who say you have to tear down the system like i i think that sometimes they're off in terms Mm -hmm. of like their vision but i appreciate that challenge i appreciate hearing that challenge i'm sitting with this metaphor that comes from israel like the the name israel means to wrestle so Mm. i'm sitting with that metaphor and i'm also sitting with someone said on my twitter recently that the word telos is actually like an indo-european word Mm. that means more like of what we think of when we think of similar to wrestling, like sort of a dwelling, and that, which is a constant emotive experience, mm-hmm. constantly moving, energy moving experience, as opposed to purpose in the kind of Promethean sense, I think, which I, I think is how we think of purpose societally, mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. progressive, like inevitable progressiveness. And I think in that sense, the Taoist conception and I've seen this. I'm mixing up Taoism and Buddhism. I apologize to those of no, you who care. But uh, <laughs> in Vajrayana Buddhism, there's this thread, which I mentioned earlier, which is like enlightenment and, un- and non-enlightenment are the same things. Like samsara and nirvana are the same things. It's non-dual, right? If, even in, you know, the book of Isaiah, God says, behold, I create light and dark, good and evil. I alone do this, right? So there's like a non-dual thread that I think... I'm hypothesizing can be used if actualized to transform the sort of like bureaucratic at best Mm -hmm. utilitarian at worst organizations that you're speaking about. Because you can, in a lot of the Buddhist literature I've been reading, there's like, they're saying like all of these dysfunctional ways of being are forms of enlightenment, just in distorted form. Hmm. So that idea really like delights me mm-hmm. on some level. And I'm way more attracted to that, that idea than I am to like ideas of Gnosticism that we mm-hmm. talked mm-hmm. about earlier. So I don't know, like this is all like philosophical, but that something chimes in me when I hear that, that phrasing. Yeah, I think it leaves the opportunity for like actionability in a way that, you know, something like Gnosticism is so many layers away from like yeah. the concept of maybe groundedness or like, being in the world and so on but yeah i mean it's it's as 
desperately needed now as ever. I think we're at an inflection point and continue to be a one and like, there's just not sustainable any longer. Mm -hmm. So I hope that, you know, to some degree there is like this submission to that concept within some of these institutions. And even if it's one or two, um, and bottom up or top down, I think Mm -hmm. like that's a huge, huge victory because there is also this idea of like, what can one instance really affect, you know? And it's like, well, that's, very much at the heart of like anything we do every day and yeah. like we either make an extremely nihilistic decision and everything unravels or yeah. there's some sort of like dignity in uh in that idea so i say get in there <laughs> no no beautifully said yeah i i saw avatar the last airbender three years ago and i was like oh this is true <laughs> this Just is like straight facts. fundamentally true i'm i want to be an avatar like i want to be pocahontas i want to be an avatar yeah, yeah. i want to be all these things you know you want to be malik pocahontas you want to yeah, be, yeah be like avatar. If, yeah. if all three like were an amalgamation totally i would fuck with that that would be so absolutely cool. absolutely <laughs> do you want to hype or peep anything that you're into right now for the, um, for the interwebs damn uh yeah let's see Something that just like anything I'm enjoying uh, on the interwebs. Yeah, there's a couple sub stacks. Let's see. There's um, uh, Adam Lair, who's a local New York artist, uh, has a sub stack called Safety Propaganda, mm-hmm. um, has a really rich compendium of kind of like artistic references that are relatively subversive and I think needed in that regard for this moment when it comes to art and culture. Uh, he's great. And then, gosh, what else? That's the only one I have off the top of my head right now. But yeah, Perfect. what about you? Well, all the things I mentioned in this pod, <laughs> definitely like vibrating on. I would encourage people to take up some set of practices like that gets you in sort of like right relationship with yourself and the environment mm-hmm. you're in. I do, you know, meditation, contemplation practices, and I'm constantly sort of like upgrading them or updating them based upon like new stuff I'm reading. But I also just started taking motorcycle lessons and yeah (laughs) it's i'm like terrible at it but like getting (laughs) getting better uh you know every step of the way and i actually took a motorcycle lesson this weekend oh yeah it's like street bike it was like a like smaller street, bike for the street or for like a dirt bike, like street, for the right? street, for the okay, street okay. Yeah. Cool, cool. and it was so fun. <laughs> and yeah. I love, I love learning it because it teaches you that coherence mm-hmm, that we're talking mm-hmm. about. Like that's a very simple example of cohering with your environment and your environment cohering with you in a way that requires a kind of inner harmony because if not you might die right it's like (laughs) it's like it's like rain wet as my friend Mm -hmm. likes to say it's like (laughs) so i would just encourage people to try to get into alignment um Um, (laughs) and model that for others whatever your steed may be whether by horse or or by yeah exactly yeah (laughs) and also if you're interested in helping me design this video game let me know Um, like in the I, chat. I'm, I'm doing that that uh scene from lord of the rings where where they like they light the fire on the mountain and then oh yeah and then know, they're all and, lit then all, and then they're all lit so if you want to get lit with me <laughs> let's go 
have you not to go go off of this but have you seen the the lord of the, the new lord of the rings i'm not up, i'm not completely up to date i've only okay. seen the first three episodes got it yeah i had rock bottom expectations but i i find it palatable <laughs> um enough to watch i think i'm just like rock very bottom. yeah yeah i mean like there's it's insane like what they've done with a billion dollars it's almost like have you, do you know tim and eric have you, do you ever know no it's like a, it was a sketch show tim heidecker mm. with eric Wareheim. but anyway they they made this movie called tim and eric's billion dollar movie and there's a scene they just create like a two-minute video with johnny depp but it's the they cast the wrong johnny depp etc and like their financer financier paid a billion dollars for it and he's like i paid a billion dollars for this piece of shit like that's kind of what was going through my mind watching the pilot but i realized like if i just see orcs like i'm just yeah. satisfied. i'm yeah. like all right let's do it let's I will watch that's like it. absolutely needs met so uh, that's it but yeah Whatever. I'm actually, I just started reading Lord of the Rings. Um, I'm like trudging through this slowly but surely. I'm like, I got to do it. I I cannot truly call myself a fan. Of yeah, yeah. If I haven't read it, I know that deep down. As much as Fantastic. it pains me to say it, but no, so I'm just, just trucking through. I also was saying this recently to a friend, another example of perhaps proof that our collective unconscious is like craving this sort of adventure time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> this wellspring of films and movies and tv shows that are all about like ancient or real real or fantasy ancient worlds where mm-hmm. like people are like going on adventures and people are figuring out what does yeah. it mean to become king what does it mean to become queen what does it mean to govern what is required oh, yeah. to govern right yeah. you see this in like viking shows and which i'm obsessed with by the way um you see this in like you know, The Last Kingdom, see this with Lord of the Rings. You see yeah. this with, uh, what's the uh, Game of Thrones spinoff? House of the Dragon. House of the Dragon. Like, yeah, yeah. this archetypal, like, <laughs> and I'm like, we're going to put that in the video game. <laughs> you, know what's, you know what's so funny? That, that's such a great point is how, like, people are just, like, thirsting for these, like, thirsting. very first, first principle concepts about, like, civic just like uh yeah. robustness and it would be so funny if like netflix is sitting there like on their like uh you know writing by committee via what the algorithm is saying and they're like they're just pumping out all this actually value that just serves yeah. that. like <laughs> we doubt we doubted netflix but they actually like inadvertently restructured and reordered everything but yeah um that's a great point that's so true it's something i've not even even realized but absolutely true that's such a great framing too because it's like the algorithm picks up on humans, right? Yeah, that's right. like <laughs> the worst, but this is like the the silver lining that, that nobody's talking about that maybe yeah. is uh, making all the difference. It's like it's right there. You know that uh, yeah. what is it? A Geico commercial, I think, where there's a fisherman and he's holding a fishing line, and there's a fish at the end of it, and yeah. he's like trying to coax the person to get it, and he goes, "Ooh, you almost got it! Ooh, you almost got it!" <laughs> he's just dangling it's so the... funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like that's where we are with the algorithm. It's like, yeah, it's so close. It's so close. Come on. Come on. Come on, everybody. Yeah. 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 I don't know. We'll see. Indeed. So, like, midwife it into existence. Exactly. Before we go, because we are at an hour, why don't I I realize I forgot to do this? Can you tell us who you are? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Sorry. I'm. Robert Wickers, friend of Chloe. Now we met uh, through <laughs> ThinkSpot, which is a little endeavor, a little project we were working on uh, that came apart at the seams, but is going to be <laughs> back hopefully in a couple months and in a kind of uh, redesigned, more low key manner. So feel free to check that out in like two, three months. And then hmm. otherwise, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm hanging out in Brooklyn and 
hanging out with Chloe and just doing my thing. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And that's a Jordan Peterson outfit, right? Think spot. It is. It is. Awesome. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thanks for coming out on the yeah. pod. Thank you so much for having me. It's super fun. Absolutely. Let's uh, hit Cafe or Zuli or something soon. Um, yeah. I'm here for, for a while. I'm also nice. into the espresso game. Boom. So. Yeah. I, you know, I just got back from Italy. So perfect. Let's <laughs> keep that train rolling. But um, yeah, I'll be here for another another month and then I'm gone for months. But let's, yeah, let's hang out. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thanks for having me, Chloe. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. All right. We'll see you. Bye.